The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. In a world where superhero podcasts are sometimes broken up into two episodes, an announcer might realize at the last minute that they don't have a thing to say about their in-a-world moment. This is Totally Super. Welcome to Totally Super, where we and, review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And we are, we, uh, my name is Arthur, and we are nothing if not truthful here. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, uh, Arthur came unprepared, uh, and that is only because I become overprepared with awesomeness. <laughs> this is a show about how awesome, awesome everything is. Um, okay. Uh, we are continuing our conversation about Justice League. Started last week. We ended last week talking about the character of Superman. First of all, this is going to seem like a very empty podcast if you're like, oh, they're going to talk all about Justice League. And no, we're going to talk half about Justice League. Last week was with the first half. So go listen to that. It's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, we just talked about Superman being um, overpowered and whether or not he negates the need for all the other Justice League. So now we're in a situation where we need to talk about all the characters. And I think the first thing we need to talk about is Superman. I think that we we were on him. So I want to ask you, uh, sir, what do you think of Superman in this film as uh, a character, as a person? Is he a character? Is he a person? What do you think of the portrayal? And then I have something I want to talk about. The, uh, so I'll start this with saying, in general, for just about every hero in the league, I can think of at least one moment where I was like, oh, I really liked what they did with the character here. Uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking about that with Supes. Uh, you know, because the, the moment with him and Lois Lane and his mother in the cornfield, it was nice. But again, it was 100 hundred percent predictable. Uh, it was, there were some, I mean, certainly his return allowed for some really beautiful acting moments, uh, with Amy, uh, uh, with Adams. Amy Adams, but the, I, why did I just think Amy Acker at the moment? It's because it's a Joss movie. That's why. That's right. Uh, but, uh, you know, beyond that, I mean, I still enjoyed what Cavill did with it, even though there wasn't much for him to do. Uh, yeah, Superman did not blow me away in this film. No, me neither. As a matter of fact, um, I, I'm just going to talk about the mustache is what I got to talk about. Uh, there was, as we know, he was uh, doing Mission Impossible Fallout. He's the bad guy in that. And he was contractually obliga- obligated to have that mustache on. Warner Brothers offered Paramount Pictures $3 million to have him shave the mustache off so that for their reshoots, they could digitally impose the mustache. And the director agreed, said, that's no problem. We'll do that. We could use the $3 million. And Paramount, in a kind of a dick move, turned around and said, no, well, we don't. We're not okay with that. So you just got to take him with his mustache. Sorry. And so he went and shot the scenes with the mustache. And then they digitally replaced his mouth in the scenes. And there are times where it is freakish and upsetting. Luckily, the I first never scene noticed where he's looking. Oh, my gosh. Um, I dare you, now that you know this, to rewatch the scenes where he's talking to Amy Adams in the cornfield and the conversations and when he smiles, it is, it's wrong. It is, we've talked before about the Uncanny Valley. Uh, The Uncanny Valley, for those of you who have never heard of it, is the concept that the closer and closer and closer you get to realism in unreality, like digital unreality, the more and more and more uncomfortable you are with it. It's the, the, and you think of it as a U, like a a U curve, and that eventually as, as effects get better and better and better, you become more and more okay with it to the point where now you can't tell like you look at the deep fakes and stuff and that it, it doesn't approach on county value because they've figured out how to do it so 
It's the reason that we're okay with Buzz and Woody being being CGI. It's the reason that we're that we're not okay with the way that the Polar Express things make us feel. And what they did with his mouth is so freakishly wrong that in key scenes, and maybe you felt it and you didn't know why you were feeling it because you didn't know why you were seeing it, in key scenes where he is supposed to act and smile and emote, his mouth is wrong. It's wrong. And it's not, you've seen, you've seen Henry Cavill smile before. You know what he looks like when he's smiling. And this is, it's the Joker smile on him. And it is off-putting to the point where I am not able to emotionally connect with Superman at all in this film. And the key scene needed to be the Amy Adams scene in the cornfield. And the fact that that scene left me with a pit in my stomach made it so he lost me. And it's a shame because I walked away from this and I frankly didn't love his acting performance in Mission Impossible Fallout that it made me almost not watch The Witcher because I was like, ah, Henry Cavill, he sucks. And over the course of The Witcher, I've been able to go, actually, this guy's, oh, oh, he's doing something here. Oh, he's actually pretty good. And I've come back around on Henry Cavill recently. But this movie turned me off to him. And I think one of the reasons is, is the, the look it up, man. Look it up. What was, once you, once you know it's there, it's clearly very clear. I'm going to send you personally, Arthur, I will text you afterward a couple of shots where you'll go, oh yeah, that's wrong. Um, I will say there was a lot of, I might've noticed that something was off, but the thing is there was a lot of the special effects in this film that felt off to me. Uh, the, the CGI and especially in the action scenes, it did not feel like there was a real seamless integration between what was real and what was digital. Um, it felt a little Star Wars episode two, didn't it? Like that, that scene where Anakin's like chopping up the things on the conveyor belt. Like, yeah, 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 I agree with you. I agree with you. So that's Superman. So the second character we got to talk about, um, well, since we're talking CGI, let's jump all the way to the end real quick. What did you think of Steppenwolf as a character and as a rendering? Steppenwolf was the major problem to this film. Um, uh, you know, it is, you know, granted, it is a uh, a sweeping gesture to be able to say, oh, if they had fixed this one thing about a film, the film would have been good. But if there is any one thing that I could say about this film that, oh, if you had just fixed this, the film would have been good. It is that Steppenwolf is a profoundly uninteresting villain in every way. Uh, if you had somehow made Steppenwolf an interesting villain, giving him a more compelling backstory, making his dialogue and his... Uh, you know, making both his virtues and his flaws less stereotypical, done anything to make him different than pretty much your stock, tyrannical, powerful warrior overlord. I think it really would have helped this film. But the fact is, is that Steppenwolf was just so uninteresting that even the fear he was supposed to impose upon all of the other characters, I did not feel. He was just so cookie cutter to me. Now, there were a few moments where he had something... Let me ask you a question, Arthur. What did Steppenwolf Wolf want? Uh, he wanted to basically, he wanted to convert the world to his own, much like his own homeland. And yes, they did. There was certain hints that he dropped about, you know, when he said for dark side, that sense of now he'll be welcomed back from exile. I mean, clearly what they were meant to be was little Easter eggs for saying, oh, look, we're building up to apocalypse. Uh, but or dark but side. because they were just Easter, like, had they actually talked a little bit more? But now I actually don't know too much about Steppenwolf's backstory from the comics. But if, if his backstory is that Darkseid, who essentially is the DC version of Thanos, uh, if Darkseid had banished him for being a failure, and all of this was about him trying to get back in his boss's good graces, that's something that we should have seen more of. 
as opposed to just seeing it hinted at once. There were a couple good moments of dialogue. The, you know, when somebody, when one of the prisoners was saying, please, I have a family. And then he just said, why do people keep telling me that as he killed the prisoner? Like, I mean, I would, I would be shocked if that was not a Joss Whedon line because that's, oh, yeah, a, absolutely. that was a great, yeah, that was a great lampshading. Uh, I mean, Joss Whedon is at his best frequently when he is pointing out the stereotype and somebody saying, please, I have a family is a very stereotypical thing for a hostage to do. It is ironic that you have a villain who is so stereotypical with no real commentary on that fact. Um, and honestly, it makes me wonder that I know that we're going to get to this later on. The big question about do we want the Snyder cut? I think a lot of that for me is going to hinge on, okay, but was Steppenwolf's character more of a creation of Joss or Snyder? Because I don't want more of that. Yeah, I think that largely th- my problem with Steppenwolf th- is the same. I- I'm not sure what drives him. I'm not sure what makes him get up in the morning. And mm-hmm. I think that we're in a world now where where you need that. And if it's okay if you don't have that, but not having that has to also be an issue like it's okay that nothing drives the joker because the fact that nothing drives the joker is talked about it's an issue like they go Mm -hmm. they they talk like like you have to say some people just want to see the world burn it's not that it just so happens that nothing drives the joker it's that nothing drives the joker and that is crazy and in that nuts how nothing drives the joker like people Mm -hmm. recognize that like it's as a matter of fact it's nothing is the thing that drives the joker as opposed to there is no thing that drives the joker if that makes sense you understand the distinction yes Mm -hmm. um in this case there i don't know what okay he wants to make it like his home planet so dark side will like him again and i don't i don't understand what his deal is he seems very driven to do what he wants um he really wants those mother boxes i guess but Mm -hmm. much like we talked about in the last episode not caring about the people that he's destroying i also don't i don't fear what he wants he doesn't want something i guess the world's gonna end and eventually that's gonna get me you know like that mm-hmm. when it was happening happening in new york you're like oh my gosh that there goes grand central station oh my you know, like it's when they're destroying landmarks when it's happening in independence day you're like oh my gosh there's the white house but there's not even that. Like there's he's going to places that I've never known, destroying people that I don't care about for reasons that I never understand. And mm-hmm. so as a villain, he's so cookie cutter. And then there's the way that he's rendered. Um which is not Thanos great. was on Thanos is only a year later. We have had at this point CGI baddies before. And they have been good largely at this point. You can do it. Now it's it's clear that you can do it. This is this is a character. There's no reason he had to be CGI other than the fact that he's big. Um, mm-hmm. He could have been a person or he could have just been regular person size, which would have been more interesting, I think. Uh, but he really he looks like like PlayStation 2 level graphics. And again, yeah. when we are when we have a Superman approaching an uncanny, uncanny valley, one of the things that makes Loki so great is Tom Hiddleston, right? That's what it's. It's the fact that there's a person behind it really kind of matters. And there is none of that. You don't even get the the added... Like if you... All right, here's a great example. Odin in Thor is a nothing character. As a character, he sucks. He's terrible. But you put Anthony Hopkins in it and then it's good. I will say the I'd like I, I will admit I don't know the actor who played Steppenwolf but I with what he was doing which pretty much was just his vocal you know just listening to his voice because that was pretty much the only actual thing you got from him I liked some of the way he was he was delivering a few of these lines which were very cookie cutter lines he was delivering them in pretty compelling ways it was an, it's entirely possible that if you had removed the whole digital rendering thing and we could have just seen his face like we do with uh, you know with Anthony 
Anthony Hopkins with Odin that he might have been a more interesting character. I mean, in just the same way that if they had focused on digitally rendering Anthony Hopkins' face in the first Thor, Odin would have been way less interesting. I think back to, here's a great example, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, one of my favorite movies. First Justice League movie I ever saw. Um, there's a character whose name is Joey, and Joey doesn't speak. And the guy's not a great actor. He's not a super awesome actor. He's a very standard 80s actor. But just him looking and him emoting makes you you get into his character somewhat. The fact that people can make you do that just because the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. And when you have a dead-eyed character, even if he was voiced by the world's greatest, um, even if he was voiced by the world's greatest actor, you would still not be able to, uh, like, like you would not be able to, to get what you needed to out of the performance because the eyes are dead. And so when you have a character who isn't written well and he doesn't come across cross as have, having any kind of humanity because of the way he's rendered the voice actor can do whatever they they can do but i just think that you're you end up with an, an uncompelling villain and that's a real problem in a film like this like when mm-hmm. when i've already said the hero is put you say the hero is not interesting i say the hero is off-putting you say the the story of the the, the the character on the page for this guy is uninteresting and i say that the 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 way he's made is less than compelling that's a real problem for your movie yeah that's you know we like ignoring everything every other issue we've said about the plot those two issues are key <laughs> those are really important yeah and um yeah uh it's it's basically that's them okay let's talk about the other main characters in the movie uh batman mm-hmm. is portrayed by ben affleck the thing we get in this movie is we get to compare him to Batman as portrayed by Ben Affleck in Batman v Superman. What are your thoughts about this Batman? And is it the I same am, one? I am not 100% uh, convinced of this statement that I'm about to say, but I think, I think that Ben Affleck as Batman in this film might be my favorite Batman. I think. Interesting. Uh, I I like what, or I, I can say, he might be my favorite Bruce Wayne for certain. Um, the, because he had, there was a range. There was, I mean, you certainly had his dark and driven um, I loved how in Batman v Superman, you got this aspect of Bruce that was, oh, what happened? You know, Batman and Bruce have always been very single minded. But in Batman v Superman, you got this sense of, OK, what happens if they're single minded about something and they're wrong? Uh, and I liked the fact that they did spend some time in this really dwelling on, you know, so much of what Bruce was doing. You got this sense that it was from this guilt of the mistake that he had made in Batman v Superman. And I thought Affleck. Uh, I thought Affleck showed that well. Um, there was one moment that completely surprised me at the end when Superman flies back in, like the first time he flies into attack Steppenwolf and they realize that Steppenwolf has saved the day. There's just this incredibly small, very short shot of Batman. And it's, you know, it's behind the cowl and everything. But so help me in this three second shot, there's this a brightness to his eyes and an almost half smile on his face. And I swear it is like it is like the smile of a child looking up in wonder. And I realized in that moment that what we're seeing is, you know, Batman seeing Superman coming back. And, you know, we say many things about Batman's characters or Batman's characteristics. Hopeful is not one of them. In that moment, in Bruce Wayne, the beaten down, incredibly driven, semi-psychotic anti-hero, we saw this moment of this kid feeling hope again. Uh, and again, maybe that's just what I saw in it. But if that was if that was there, then that is a side of Bruce Wayne that I've never really seen before. Um, I like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I still really like Keaton, but I feel like there were more levels to what Affleck did. I hate to disagree with you. <laughs> I really do. 
Um, I feel like I've seen this Batman before, and it feels like George Clooney's Batman. I feel like his light is unearned. I feel like his story of of the way he feels about Superman and, and the guilt he feels and all that, I feel like it is... It is a bit of a retcon from where he was in the last. He doesn't seem like the same Bruce Wayne who was, you know, who was so convinced that, that so desperate that the world needed to be saved. And, and, and I don't see any of that desperation now, which is, you know, you know, I, I, he should be more desperate in a world like this. He seems silly in the cowl now. Um, frankly, Ben Affleck does not look like as super as he did. One of the things that impressed me was what he physically did to transform him, transform himself in the last one. He seems a little pudgy to me in this one, which I guess is fine. I don't care. Like that's not important for the character one way or the other. But the, one of the things that really impressed me in the last one was that Affleck committed to the physical transformation that he that he went through, and it seems like Batman's been slacking off a little bit. Um, I feel like his uh, you know, he's quipping more than ever. I'm rich, you know. Like I, it's it's a funny line. I'm sure that Joss wrote it, but it's it's not. You know him as the as the salesman as the used car salesman for 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 Justice League. I don't buy it from him. Um, I feel like the performance is watered down. I feel like it is. Um, there's nothing that grabs me about it. It's it is to use a word that I hate. It's fine. <laughs> it's it's all right. I guess it's not. I, I can't point out anything that's awful. Um, he certainly doesn't. You know, he doesn't crap the bed on it. But he is. He really impressed me in the last film. I was ready to hate him in the last film. And he turned around and did such a great job and delivered such intensity. And I'm feeling none of it here. And I, I'm what I'm feeling here again, and I felt this before. I would have said this before all, everything that's come out right now. And I think it's worth noting. Have you been reading the press for the movie he's got right now, The, uh, the Way Back? No. So he has said that the reason he's not coming back to do The Batman was that when it came time to do it, one of his friends said, if you do that, that movie, you're going to drink yourself to death. So his relapse happened on, and according to him, somewhat because of this film mm. and the chaos that surrounded this film. He's come straight out and said, that was not a pleasant experience. I wasn't enjoying myself doing it. Um, there are two very different ver- visions for the movie. And Affleck is a director who maybe had his own vision for how this was going to go. And I am just getting the sense that he is, he's not phoning it in, but I'm not getting the sense that he really believes in his own performance in this. And I am, I'm disappointed by this Batman, frankly. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're getting a joy out of it that I'm not. I don't fault you for getting that joy, but I'm, I am, you know, I'm glad someone is because I'm not huh. at all. So what did you think um, of, uh, what did you think of, uh, let's say moving on to, uh, well, I guess to Wonder Woman and uh, Gal Gadot's performance. I feel like she's solid. I feel like she's, you know, she is doing the same thing every time I want. I, I look forward to the day I get to see her not play Wonder Woman to see mm-hmm. whether or not she's a really good actress or if she's just really suited to this role. Wonder right. Woman. I do not, I do not get the sense that she arcs, that she grows or that she changes. But her scenes are are carried off. Every scene carried off with conviction and aplomb. She is able to handle the ironic scenes, the scenes that you sort of wink at the camera just as well as she can. The action itself, just as well as she can. The pathos. She's a, everything that's handed to her. She gives a solid B plus to A minus performance. And you know, 
nothing's going to win an Oscar. And I don't know if you move her to another role, if I'm going to go, oh, no, this is really all she can do. Or if she's going to turn around and do, you know, pull her Margot Robbie on me and make me go, oh, no, she's, oh, she's bringing a, a ton to, yeah, mm-hmm. I need to see her do something else to evaluate, you know, whether or not she's one of the greats, but she is great at this. Yeah. Um, and nice she continues up. to be great at this on the page and what do you think about I, you've been handling on the page stuff so what do, what do you think of her character on the page uh we, you mean on the page in terms of the comics or yeah no i mean in terms of the script what do you think of the oh the, in terms of the script of, i like and if you have something to say I, about her character you say that uh, her acting too but what do you think of the character as written in the movie well i think the uh first i think the her acting and the character uh both in this film and in wonder woman they suit each other very very well like i look forward to when we review wonder woman um there is a warmth to her uh which i ironically enough the, for a movie for a trilogy that is all about hope um it is kind of and it's even hinted at in this film that honestly the character who could be the biggest symbol of hope is not superman it's wonder woman uh and i did i loved the conversation that bruce and diana had where bruce straight up calls her on it and he's like you've been here for you know what 90 years now you could have been superman you the world could have been looking to you for hope but here you are hiding away like literally Literally, she saves people from a terrorist attack. And then the next scene is she's just back, you know, dusting off a statue like a regular old antiquities dealer does. Um, and I liked the fact that that was called out. There was she actually had a bit of an arc. I would have loved to see more of it. But the arc of her realizing um, and her reasoning for why she didn't take the lead, saying it's one thing for me to swoop in and save the day. If I start being a leader, that means I need to start sending good people like Steve Trevor to their death, which is a an honestly a, a very compelling reason for why someone would not want to take responsibility. And then there was a line in the, uh, you know, in the final conflict where she says, all right, I'll take lead on this. Um, um, now, if you had wanted to have a really good uh, wrap up of that arc after introducing the whole concept of her fear of if I'm a leader, that means I need to make the hard choice. Then what you would have needed to really wrap up her storyline there would have been her having to make a hard choice in the final conflict. And we didn't get that. But we did at least see that after the conflict was done in the final moments of the film, we see her clearly getting ready for Wonder Woman, not just Diana Prince, but for Wonder Woman to take a bigger role on the world stage. Uh, so I thought there was a good arc with all of that. And there's just a, there's a, there is a sweet and warm emotional sensation sincerity to uh what gal gadot brings to the character uh she can say a lot with her eyes um yeah i just i I think you you put it really well i have no idea what she does with other roles but for this role at least i really like her in it yeah i agree um i think this is as good a time as any to talk about a production problem that i have with the film I thought about saving it to the end, but I don't. It's not really part of the conversation I want to have, and that is the portrayal of women in Themyscira. Um, mm. And it, this movie, this movie was called out for that. And you can find memes if you want to look back and see the difference between when a woman directs Amazonian women yeah. and when a man directs Amazonian women. And I had this conversation um, with Alexia over on Trekoff when the movie came out. She was so against the character of Wonder Woman and specifically Gal Gadot because as as she would say pardon my language she goes they need to get a big bitch in there is what she said her words well this she had is, a well, problem Alex- 
Garcia said that, this is this is my shocked yeah. voice. <laughs> um, but her 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 argument was: we've had enough Buffies, we've had enough little girls who are super powerful. Why why is that the only version of beauty that there is? And and Gal Gadot, for as tall as she is, she's still and as strong as she is, she is not like like a, a UFC fighter, like muscle bound woman, right? So, so she was so turned around by that Wonder Woman movie. She walked in arms folded, ready to hate it and walked out loving Gal Gadot, loving Mm -hmm. the Amazonian women and loving specifically that they were all at once immediately sexy, but not at all sexualized. Yeah. They were beautiful, perfect women who had a sensuality to them but were not sexualized by the male gaze. And that's because it was directed by Patty Jenkins, a woman who who directed directed Wonder Woman. The scene in this immediately that she noted to me, she said, and of course, the minute you get a man back to direct the same exact thing, it's bare midriffs, bikini armor, you know, the shots are underneath. So when they're holding the walls, yes, yes, they look strong, but it's also a crotch shot over and over. There's a butt shot here. And it's the same problem that she had with Wonder Woman in Batman v Superman who is like falling back with her legs spread and stuff like that. She goes, she goes, you can see the difference between a man shooting it and a woman shooting it. And she, and she said that the biggest place you could see it was the portrayal, exact same sets, exact same actors, exact same digital renders, exact same people. You know, you're doing a lot of the jobs, but a different director and a different way of shooting that sexualized these characters that had not been sexualized. And she was so angry because she was so happy before how they've been portrayed. Mm-hmm. And now she felt like this was a betrayal of that. It was, it was a definite backslide. Um, the, uh, and so I no, felt I agree like with I would be remiss. That. Yeah. There was something you um, mentioned there that I want to, I want to uh, just jump in. This is going to derail us for just a minute or two, just because hearkening back to the last conversation we had with Batman V Superman, uh, you and I, we had a discussion uh, about the bathtub scene uh, with Amy Adams. And uh, even afterwards, I was, I was like, there was something like, cause what you were saying was completely correct in a lot of ways. And there was something sort of just like niggling at the back of my mind, like, okay, wh- what was it that made me uncomfortable with what we were discussing? And I think I just realized it right now. And that is the phrase, which is, you are far from the only person to have used this phrase, the male gaze. And I think I realized what it is that I don't like about that term is because, uh, and, and follow me through to the end of this, is we're not saying the lecherous male gaze. We're saying the male gaze, which basically equates men with lechery. Now, this is actually not me. This is not me saying not all men at all. <laughs> it's actually rather saying that when we equate men with lechery, we are straight up essentially giving ourselves a pass. We're giving ourselves an excuse to saying, oh, that's just how we are. So, of course, we need to heroically fight this aspect of ourselves. When, in fact, I wonder that if, you know, we've talked a bunch about, you know, what we did in high school, the, uh, you know, how we would think in high school. And there's part of me that starts thinking if we started, you know, with kids not saying, oh, all men are just hypersexual beings and you need to combat that. If we instead said, no, hypersexuality is a bad thing uh, in this way and you don't have to be that way and started it real early, then maybe we would end up with people finding that maybe it wasn't that hard. Like the corollary to me is um, 
to say that like if we were saying that the male gaze is a violent gaze uh, equivalent you know, basically saying that a male gay a male sees something and that's somebody that they just want to punch in the face well men have a lot of testosterone um, we have all of us had moments in life where we wanted to punch somebody in the face but we didn't think oh I really need to resist this male urge to punch this person in the face right now because from early on we had drilled into us no just violently punching people except in extremely specific situations is just straight up not a good thing and you should know better we have not had it spelled out to us uh, you know the we have not had anti-lechery spelled out to us in those uncertain terms um, sorry that the, this was a long way of getting around to that but uh, but basically it was just those two words male gaze and I was like there's something that's there was something that was bugging me about that now I'm gonna give I want to be clear on what I'm saying here because I I'm going to disagree with you but I want to be clear in my disagreement that I understand what you're saying and that you mm-hmm. are not saying hashtag not all men. Yeah. Um, because clearly not all anything for anything. But let me be very clear about myself. I was trained by society from a very young age to get a peek at what you can peek at. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, in, in middle school, I can't tell you how many shirts I looked down and I'm not proud of it. And that is just how I was taught. What taught me? It's a really good question. What taught me? No one told me to, but my friends did. So I did. And and why did they? Did their dad say, hey, here's what you do? No, they think anyone's dad would go, no, you don't do that. So what taught me? And I, and the more I think back at the stuff that we grew up on, the stuff that was just sort of accepted um, at the time, I think of a movie that was so popular, so problematic now is, is movies like, I think we've mentioned this before, like Revenge of the Nerds where Mm -hmm. they show nudity in that movie, but the nudity they show is specifically men peeking in on unsuspecting girls. And it's also shown in a way that's like very hard. Oh, it's like, oh, this is just harmless fun because this is what just all men do given the opportunity. Yeah, this is that. This is Porky's. It's psycho. It's, you know, it's always sort of the male gaze as defined by this, I don't think is just the lecherous gaze, but is specifically the, the, these women are not intending to be sexual but you are being allowed to look at them sexually. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is a version of the male gaze. It's the it's the woman who's wearing yoga pants because they're they're comfortable at the grocery store, but you are looking at their at you're looking at their butt as you're walking by. And it's still ingrained in me to the point where I do have to go, don't. And I say my I say to myself, don't. I catch myself looking and I have to say to myself, don't. And I'm getting better at not doing it. I'm getting better at going at, at, at don'ting. But it's so ingrained in me and I wonder why. And the fact is, is that we have been fed a diet of this is what we look at, this is what we look at, to the point where I, I completely think agree. That, I think that we have, as moviegoers and even as directors, gone, this is what, you know, sometimes it's this is what this is what boys want to see, so let's give it to them. And I think there's maybe even something more subconscious of this is the way that you shoot women in a movie. I think this is the way a woman in a movie should look. And and what I love about what Patty Jenkins was able to do is that the difference is here's the difference. Amy Adams in the bathtub. She kept creeping right up to areola on her boob as it was peeking up out of the bathroom. You knew she's creeping up right to the spot, right to the spot. Patty Jenkins would have maybe shot that more in close up on her, more on her face, more on the shoulders. Not so much like if she moves one inch, then ooh, you might get a get that. That's there's a difference in the way that would be shot, and that would be respecting having having the respect to kind of turn away. And not I actually, I it, I don't think we're disagreeing here. The I, I just want to make yeah. it really clear, like what you're 
you're describing there. I 100% agree uh, about all of that. I think the only thing that I was saying is there might be a better way to describe it than with the word, than literally with the words male gets like what, what we are talking about is absolutely a very real thing. There is a very real uh, cultural pressure and drive, uh, you know, for men to, you know, for men to sexualize women in these ways and men are given passes for it. And Lord knows it, you know, it, it seeps into every aspect of filmmaking practically. Uh, so like all of that, um, I completely agree with you on. It was just that the, if it, it's like the difference between, it's why I actually like the term toxic masculinity because it, it specifically says, no, masculinity is not the problem. The problem is all this toxic stuff that we have, that is filtered into it. That has now been, the problem is, the problem is not masculinity. The problem is that we have started equating toxic masculinity with just being male. And they are actually two very separate things. Um, and in the same way, um, like if we allow ourselves to envision, no, there are a million and one ways in which a male gaze can be a perfectly normal thing. It's just this certain aspect of the male gaze, call it the lecherous male gaze, call it the toxic male gaze. But by specifically saying it is these elements that are bad and you don't get to just say, oh, I'm male, therefore I have these elements, what you're going to do that I think would help us, you know, better, better excise all of them from our society and our art if that makes sense yeah i i i understand i i understand where you're coming from on the term the one thing i do like about the term is it says you need to have women there to to question what might be subconscious in you i will tell that you that is a good ninjas point that Monst is a good point ninjas versus monsters has lots of male gaze in it um and and things you know and fridging and stuff that was called to my attention afterward and it's my default to to think in terms that I don't realize is my default to think. And I was so lucky on Cancellation, the movie that I'm finishing now, that I have a female director of photography who also happened to be, you know, she doubled as my costume designer. And where I was like, ooh, a little more form-fitting, she was like, why? And I was like, oh, okay, I guess you're right. Like, it's just mm -hmm. stuff that didn't even occur to me. My, my, my default was to take characters that were not necessarily sexy and make them sexier. And she was like, why? Like, why, why shouldn't we do that? And suddenly I realized that these are just defaults that I have. And she is rightly going, yeah, but this is this is what a woman might want to see is 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 yeah. this being respected more. And she like, you know, and I think that extends all the way to believe it or not porn Um, for, you know, and this is a little taking us PG-13 territory to talk about. So I don't want to be very specific, but there are more female directors in that area. Now they talked about how um, there are actresses now who are making a point on making sex scenes in movies, um, even scenes that are very revealing or very sexual, um, more respectful both to the actress and to the characters and, and to the story and giving women more power in what used to be a very disempowered situation. So I think that mm -hmm. it's, you know, he, here we are, you know, two, two privileged guys <laughs> talking about Two this, straight white dudes that, try to be woke. But, but if we don't, who will? So, um, yeah. So that's all. Let's let's jump to let's jump to sure. the, the most male gazy guy of all this. Um Aquaman. Aquaman. <laughs> no, you. The bro. The bro. Um yeah. for everything that I just said, I like this guy, man. Oh I my god, I, I love him. What, well, and let's what let's be find. honest, like he was of, of all of the people in this film, like if I had to choose one character, including Wonder Woman, who was meant to be the eye candy, it would not be a woman in this film. It would be Jason freaking Momoa. As Aquaman. What a fun, fun character. Both the yeah. casting, the way he looks. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, dude, like I, my, my wife had no problem rewatching Aquaman with me the other day. It's weird. I don't know why. <laughs> um, 
uh, yeah, he is. He is funny. He is um, very much like just bringing the you know Broqua man. Um, mm-hmm. I think that there was a lot of criticism when he was like my man in the trailer. People were like, oh, this guy's going to be terrible, and no, he's he's really not. Well, it's because that share everything you get the sense that is not that is not an actor being asked to act like this cool bro. That's just that's Jason Momoa being asked to act like Jason Momoa. And that's what makes it so warm and sincere, which is, by the way, you can be a great actor and do that. Robert De Niro is always asked to be Robert De Niro. You know, Mm -hmm. he's he's still he still sells, you know, Jason Momoa has never surfed an alien down to Earth and exploded out a building like he he Mm -hmm. still sells what the script is asking him to sell. There's nothing wrong with it with an excellent character actor. He is so good in this role. And and, you know, kudos on on his casting. And as a matter of fact, I'll give Snyder this. His ability to cast actors in these iconic roles has been largely great. Yeah. Actually. Yeah, that's true, actually. I mean, shoot, Kevin Costner is... I mean, regardless of what he does with the characters once those actors are cast, uh, that's more up for debate. But the actors that he chooses are pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. Um, So, love Jason. What do you think of Ezra Miller? Um, Um, Well, first, I just got to give a quick shout out with Aquaman there. uh, Just for those from the comic perspective... Uh, I have actually in the past uh, few months gone back and started reading a lot of the most recent Aquaman comics. And it is so funny because in this movie, they make several jokes about how he talks to fish in the comics, even like Arthur Curry laments the fact that he is the superhero that everyone says talks to fish like the in both the movies and the comics. They have done a very successful uh, rebranding of Aquaman, and they've done it by first straight up acknowledging how he was always the pushover before. Like a lot of the Aquaman in the comics is him suddenly being like, I am the king of Atlantis. I am trying to broker a global diplomacy between the land and the, the ocean worlds that has never been done before. I am dealing with all of this political situation, both above and below the waves, and everyone stills like, hey, you're the guy who talks to fish. Uh, uh, like it's just been an absolute delight, and uh, I was uh, upon second viewing of this film, I was like, "Oh, that possibly more so than any of the other characters, what they're doing in the comic is actually really similar to what they're doing uh, in the film." But moving on, yeah, uh, you agree. asked what I thought of Ezra yeah. Miller for uh, uh, for the Flash. For Flash, yeah, yeah, I got what well, you know. He had a he had an uphill battle with me because again, I was like, "Why are you not using the perfect actor for the Flash that you've got in the TV show? Because he's awesome." Uh, you know, so I was prepared to be, you know, I was essentially like, okay, you got some shoes to fill. Um, and, and I like him a lot. Is he pretty much your textbook Whedon? Hey, I'm the scrappy dude who's kind of uncomfortable being here. So here's my jokes about how I'm uncomfortable being here. Ha <laughs> ha. Yes. 100% no denying, but he does it well. He does do it really well. And I, you know, I mentioned this before. Um, if you want to be even more okay with him as the flash, uh, Google Ezra Miller flash crisis, because in the crisis on the flash he goes into the into flashpoint and runs into ezra miller grant gustin and ezra miller have a scene together where where first it's this i I mentioned this before but in case you didn't hear that episode it's this wonderful little scene where where ezra miller looks at at at, uh grant gustin's suit and goes "Ooh, that looks so flexible and comfortable and then then (laughs) grant gustin looks at him goes yeah but you've got all this armor it's so well protected he goes he goes, you're Barry Allen. Wait, you're Barry Allen? That's incredible. You're the Flash? And Ezra Miller goes, the what? He goes, the Flash. <laughs> he goes, oh, the Flash. 
That's right. He, he never <laughs> actually gets named. Flash. Oh my god! Um, it's That's it's a beautiful brilliant. little scene, and and suddenly in one scene, I never again have to go. Why didn't they just get Grant Gustin? I can go. Mm-hmm. They're different. They're different people. They're different. Different oh, Barry Allen's, and they can coexist. They can have a conversation. We could kill it. an entire episode I, with the amount of awesomeness that's coming out of the uh, the crisis. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun, and and I am. Um, I, I like this character. I like, I like my Xander Harris characters. I really mm-hmm. do. Yeah. Um, oh, it's a, it's a, if you're going to use a stock character type, that's a great stock character type to use. Yeah. I am, I am, I'm am very, I, I'm very happy with the way that he turned out. As a matter of fact, a lot of people hated him. They thought, found him annoying. And again, I found him to be a breath of fresh air. Every time he's mm-hmm. on the screen, I'm kind of into what he's doing. Um, yeah. And so that's neat. Last up on our main characters is uh, is Cyborg. I don't have a lot to say about Cy- Cyborg. Um, he's certainly very earnest. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything else to add about Cyborg? Uh, yeah, other well, than y- you know what? Very- I'm realizing this, and this is probably, this is on me. I am trying to go to Wikipedia right now to look at, because I don't know the name of the actor who played him. And I am realizing that is a, that is probably a, not a great thing for a lot of different reasons here. So I'm actually this going to Ray take Fisher. the time. To, Ray, Ray Fisher. Fisher. Thank you. Thank yes. you very much. Yeah, it is. We, we've, we have named every other actor and it is very important that we name Ray Fisher. Um I actually man, the first scene I really dug him. Um the uh he was very calm, very stoic, <laughs> but you could still sense the pain underneath what he was going through, the you know, the very cold rage that he had against his father. Um I mean the the line that was you know the line was written a little bit heavy handed, the whole uh you know and he was just like oh you don't want them to see the monster and his dad's like you're not a monster and then he said it's funny how you thought that I meant you or that I meant me. Um, the line was maybe a little bit heavy handed, but he delivered it well. Um, that first scene, and I think that he did nothing different for the rest of the film. And it might've just been that be- I loved him the most in that first scene, but that might just be because after that first scene, he didn't have as much character stuff to work with. His character became a little bit more utilitarian throughout. Uh, but overall, I, you know, at his worst, he was delivering a B performance. And at his best, I thought he was delivering an A minus. Yeah, I think that, you know, I'm I'm reminded of like a, a pretty good bassist in a band. Um they yeah, he, nice. I get the I get the sense that you you've got, you know, Ezra Miller is is giving you all the spunk and and Jason Momoa, you know, he's your lead singer. And then you have your, you know, you you have your your strong guitarist, right? Like if this is Aerosmith, right? If this is Aerosmith, then Ezra Miller is your Steven Tyler. And then you mm-hmm. have Batman right next to him as your Joe Perry, who's there looking stoic and looking all look, looking all tough. And then you've got uh you you've got um Wonder Woman who is who's in there is I guess I'm really gonna see how far you can stretch this metaphor, man. Go. Yeah, how well nobody knows who Joey Kramer is. Um (laughs) my my point my point is is that I feel like they're trying to form everybody's got a different flavor and so they're bringing that into what's going to be this you know you can keep cutting to someone to be a different feeling and so that will all combine you're trying to do your gang of five and i think that ultimately because they don't all gel and you they don't have a lot of time to get on their sides that it ends up being a little cacophonous so i like what everybody's Mm -hmm. doing individually but i'm not getting the the rhythm that i think that they're trying to go for so if we were to compare it to Buffy, which is a great way to do it, is to go, you know, clearly Bruce, clearly Bruce is your is your Buffy in this. 
and and then you could probably put uh, Wonder Woman as your Willow as the more sort of hopeful version of Buffy. And then, you know, and, and Aquaman is your Cordelia, who's just saying whatever's on their mind. And Ezra mm-hmm. Miller is your Flash. And that would leave, that, that would leave uh, Cyborg Ezra as Miller your is Giles. Xander, you mean? Ezra Miller, sorry, is Xander. And, and, uh, and Cyborg is Giles. He's quiet. He has a quip from time to time. He knows all the stuff, but he's, he grounds everybody. And I think they're trying to go for that same vibe. And I think that ultimately, because they don't achieve it, it ends up sounding cacophonous a little bit. And I'm not getting mm. the rhythm that I'm getting out of the characters that I think that they want me to get, mm-hmm. um, which I think leads very well into our last question. Yeah. Um, certainly, we could talk about side characters, but I think it's it's a good question to go to now. Joss Whedon's cut of, of this movie was deliberate before Snyder quit. Joss Whedon was brought in to write new scenes. He was, like I said in the last podcast, he was already part of the DC slate. He was going, he was writing Batgirl. He was going to direct Batgirl after this movie and after a little bit of a personal upheaval in his life that went very public. They quietly escorted him off the set and he was no longer part of it. Um, mm-hmm. But he was brought in to bring a certain jossiness to this because they were seeing um, they were seeing something in this film that, to their opinion, wasn't working. So um, before I get started on that, for the film that we have, um, and we'll we'll spend a minute on this and we'll jump to elsewhere because I I think this question should be last. So for the film that we have, on a scale of one to five superheroes, with the six superheroes showing up on the poster after the movie's released. Um, what would you give the version of Justice League that we see right now? Uh, I would say I would give it a three um, in that essentially it's like I certainly didn't feel like I wasted my money. Uh, and there was there was some stuff that worked. There was some stuff that didn't work. Um, the one thing that would actually and upon second viewing, the thing that I would I would actually boost it to a three point five just because there were some things that actually happened in this that even though they weren't capitalized on really, really resonated with me. The whole thing of, uh, you know, of Bruce telling the Flash just save one the you know, the the, the line about uh, truest darkness is the conviction that light will not return. Like there were a lot enough little nuggets in this that are actually going to stay with me for a while that, you know, I would not give this movie a four because it doesn't hang together well enough to, to warrant that. But it is it's a three point five because most of the movie is most of the movie is a solid three with like these flashes of four here and there. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm going to give it a two point five. Um, I think that. The problem I had in this watch, and this was like the fifth time I've seen it because I showed it to other kids and I put it on in the background. I had a hard time getting through it. I was bored. I was bored watching the film. It doesn't stand up to re-watching. And that is a big thing that I consider when I see a movie five times. Um, I liked it, I guess, when I first saw it. But I see the failures that it has. I see the potential that it has. It is certainly not... Oh, you know, I'll give it a three just because I need to have it stand up against uh, Batman v Superman. Um, this is certainly not the disaster that is. This is a perfunctory film, but this is DC's Avengers. And that is, no, I changed my mind. It's 2.5 again, because this is the movie that is supposed to be what it's all about. Like it needs to culminate in this. The bar is necessarily higher for this film. And the fact that this is the worst of the DC films um with the exception of batman v superman um is is a problem this should this is where you should all be leading to and and part of the fun of these big franchise connected movies is the journey 
to getting to where you need to go. So if you don't stick the landing, I feel like that that is a is a ding. You should be, this should be gravy, right? This should be on your left and everybody gets goosebumps. And I did not hold Rise of Skywalker to the same, because I'm a geek for Star Wars, I guess. I understand the people now who, like the people who are not as into Star Wars and just loving every moment as I am, I get their criticism of Rise of Skywalker and going, well, it may be a fine film, but you can't just have a fine film that this is all supposed to be leading to. The bar is is set higher and it must reach that bar to be a success. And the bar Mm -hmm. is set higher. This is the Justice League. And you you should just be able to have these guys on screen fighting for an hour and a half and I should smile. And instead you have, you know, Amazons I don't care about and Atlanteans I don't care about fighting digital monsters I don't care about from a villain I don't care about and a Russian family running away. So mm-hmm. the question becomes that Russian family, that's a Joss thing, right? Can we agree the Russian family is absolutely Joss? I would imagine. It's, I mean, it was clear. The thing is, it was so clearly meant to be, look, these are regular people and these are meant to be the regular people stand-ins for the... Uh, it, it was so clearly meant to be, look at what the heroes are doing and how that actually affects regular people. Um, but it was so... It, it really did feel very shoehorned in. Yeah, it's nothing to do with anything. It's... it's Yeah. Um, I mean, it's ironically, it, and I almost never say this when it comes to superhero films, but actually... Actually, I almost never say this. This film actually could have benefited from having less time devoted to saving the civilians. Or having civilians that you cared about. I mean, think about how harrowing that first scene in Batman v Superman is. I'm not saying you have to kill everybody, but you know, when when Bruce is in there trying to save people, right? Mm-hmm. And this family, I don't need them getting bug spray. Yeah. It's not it's it's I think of all the scenes that you might have a problem with with what Joss did it's this it's that you devote so much time to these people that you that that you're taken out of the film and you can tell you can feel the hand of the writer going well we got to have something some on the ground action I guess we'll put it here and it's just like you know maybe it was a problem with the original script maybe the that there's so many larger issues Joss made such interesting choices I love the inclusion of Danny Elfman like well, I guess how, here's the, how uh, cool was it to hear the the the, the Superman theme like what a choice. yeah and the Batman theme the yeah when those little yeah. when those little things appeared I was like oh my gosh that was really cool like the I mean the the rest of the score was a little bit on was a little bit forgettable for me but the fact that I mean I loved the fact that Danny Elfman was throwing in these homages to the previous films i just feel that would have worked better if this film in any way in any other way was an homage to the previous films i i agree but at least you know joss and joss and elfman together had the wherewithal to go look people have been waiting to see these guys all together in a movie their whole lives let's get yeah so let's i agree let's just give it to him why not just give it to him do it just let him have it like there's no Mm -hmm. reason not to every batman theme you've ever had you've wished it was the other one right (laughs) like yeah You've always wished that it was the that theme. So just ha- let him have it. Go for it. I think that's a really good choice. Um, there are Joss moments I really love. Um, I I have to imagine Aquaman sitting on the on the on the rope is a Joss moment. Oh my gosh, on the, it, on the magic lasso. Well, I, and here's the thing that's so interesting. So just talking about the big question of do we want the Snyder cut? To me, that all hinges on an accurate judgment of what was Snyder and what was Joss. Um, I mean, because there's a lot of things where I think this was a Joss. Like certainly, like I'm so trained to think, oh, there was snark in this film. Therefore, any snark is going to be Joss Whedon or any cute 
little scene like Aquaman sitting on a rope. Um, the thing is, is ironically, Joss Whedon and others like him have had such a profound impact on how scripts and dialogue are written over the past 20 years that that sort of scene, we're starting to see that in a lot of films that do not have Joss Whedon uh, in any sure. way involved with that. So fair. it's kind of hard. It's kind of hard to, there's a little bit of chicken and egg going on here. Well, and, it, and there, there's even more so in that we know that Joss was brought in to do rewrites on the script that then Zack Snyder shot. So mm-hmm. Joss Whedon's dialogue might have actually been in Zack Snyder's script. Um, you know, every scene, like I know that the, the farm scene with Amy Adams where he's there with the bad mouth, that's Joss. And mm-hmm. the opening scene of Superman looking at the phone, that's Joss. Simply because anywhere where you can see Superman with, uh, you, you can see Superman with a mouth that doesn't look right, that's Joss. That's Joss. <laughs> that's a scene that That's, that's a bit Joss. of a giveaway. Um, I think the question is, clearly this scene, this movie is lighter than the other movie. Clearly it's disjointed. Clearly it's problematic. But, and this is what where we're going to end this podcast, I guess, and we're going to end this series Warner Brothers is having problems with the tone of this movie being too dark, too heady, too serious. They demanded reshoots. The pressure of that eventually was part of what drove um, Snyder in in the wake of his tragedy off the set. Did we want more Snyder? Because I can't tell you what's Joss, but we've now had three Snyder films and we've had largely the same complaint for each one of them is that there's a lack of humanity, an mm-hmm. overemphasis on wow shots of splash page shots and a decrease in quality with Watchmen's the like in order. Watchmen is better than Man of Steel, which is better than Batman v Superman, which is better than Sucker Punch. And then Joss came on and made this film that is middling. Is there a reason to think do we want more of Batman v Superman and and Man of Steel for this movie or did like or did we want a lighter more Avengers like movie that is okay for for kids is is a question and ultimately his name's on the movie and he didn't make part of it and I, like does he deserve as the artist to have it out there or is it what it is I and mean, what do you think as an artist you know, you ha- you are an artist, for instance. Mm-hmm. You write things that you direct and then walk away, and then those things change after you write them. Like they have changed, and I've told you things that I've seen that you've done when you weren't there and said, hey, they did this. And you're like, ooh, this must be something that they've added. Do you mm-hmm. feel stingy about it? Do you feel um like it no, really cool, depends on the situation? It really depends on the situation. I I think it's a it's a bit of a moot point to talk about uh in Hollywood when you factor in that no one ever knows the name of the screenwriter for a film and yes the director certainly has more control over story than a director does in theater um but when you pretty much figure that a lot of the people responsible for the words you're hearing for the story that you are watching never get their names out there it is it's kind of hard for me to feel bad about a director who maybe whose work influenced a film more than they're given being given credit for if that makes sense yeah um, um and yet there's so much jossiness yeah when the, you're a writer director and you have total control I think the uh, the the real question is, I mean, you, you, I mean, it's definitely there are moments, there are certainly aspects of this film that make it really depart from the previous two. Um, and I've been on record, I don't like what was done with the previous two. The uh, you know, it was so clear, like going into Man of Steel, Zack Snyder was saying, okay, well, let's make this about what would happen if there were gods actually fighting, and let's see the destruction that that wreaks. Now, that one actually might have been a decent choice because we've already had a Superman film, which was the iconic Superman. Granted, that was. 30 years ago. So maybe when we 
we were doing this reboot, we wanted another one of the iconic. But we have never had a Justice League film. And if you are doing a film, you know, if you're basically taking the iconic story and putting it on screen for the first time, then you should try to, don't try to do anything cool and different with it. Just try to do as faithful a version of that iconic story as you can. And then in later iterations of it, that's when you can get artistic and say, let's explore the darker side and all of that. Um, I would have to say just to, to sum up my thought on it is I do not have any faith in Zack Snyder's ability to tell a story about the restoration of hope to humanity. Absolutely zero. <laughs> I have a faith. I have a great deal of faith in Zack Snyder to occasionally be able to tell a story about uh, humanity's loss of hope. Um, and actually, I like and cinemat- cinematographically, I like Zack Snyder's style. I'm not even getting tired of it. Even knowing his style, I'm not getting tired of it. His, uh, I was realizing filming this, you know, his, uh, he's got a real habit of the fight scene is going on. There's fights, fight, 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 fight. And then suddenly things slow down. It highlights a moment and then things keep going on uh, at regular tempo. I mean, yes, that's a little bit more heavy handed than some other directors, but as a fight choreographer, that's what we try to do, period, is, is throwing in all of these tempo shifts in combat or in action in order to highlight a specific moment so it doesn't all just become a wash. Uh, and so he's doing it with, you know, with a very obvious, let's slow everything down and create this beautiful shot. Um, but that, I, 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 even three or four films in, I'm not tired of that. So I will stay, like, I still really like him uh, as a cinematographer and filming action. Um, I think if you paired him up with a writer slash director who understands something more about, uh, well, this is going to sound really harsh. If you paired him with a director writer who understood a little bit more about actual humanity, I think that would be a really powerful combination. Who knows if for whatever reason, if Joss Whedon and Zack Snyder had gone in on this truly from the get go, we might've had a truly amazing film. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think that Zack Snyder has made films that I really like. And I think there's, you know, the, the hope inside despair is something that he does very well. Uh, Watchmen being a great example of it. Even the aspects of this and Batman v Superman that I, that I like is, is being in a like despairing and holding on to hope is something that he pulls off very well. That, that sort of somber, you know, I'd love to see him just do a straight up drama, you know, like a, a mm. drama about a death in the family, I think would be, you know, I think he'd Ooh. be awesome at. But this I is a this is a Frankenstein that. of a movie. There are, there are tonal shifts. There are characters that are inconsistent from scene to scene. There are there are things that just don't work. And you have Zack Snyder out there still going, I've got a cut. I've got a cut. Just give me the money to finish it. I've got he's like literally two days ago. He tweeted this exists. I just need twenty five million dollars to to finish it. And you'll definitely make that twenty five million dollars if you let me do it. Like you'll make that money back. So why not do it? People are asking for it. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, you don't know what that does to the DC extended universe. If he has, if there are two continuities and then you have to say the, which one is the one that you're following, if there's ever a sequel in a, in a franchise film like this, I think that's, that's important. I'm reminded of, um, well, you, you know how much, you know how much I care about, uh, you know how yeah. much I care about continuity between stories. So, um, there's a movie in 2005 called Exorcist, the beginning, which was Exorcist four, um, Exorcist, uh, Exorcist, the beginning, uh, was originally called Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, and was directed by Paul Schrader. When Paul Schrader was not doing the job they wanted, he completed the film, he turned it in, um, and Morgan Creek, the company who produced it, was not happy with it, fired him, and hired Rennie Harlan, who came back and reshot 60% of the film, and is credited as the director on Exorcist The Beginning, which was ultimately a bit of a failure and was critically just slammed. 
And then after that, they released in theaters Dominion prequel to The Exorcist, which was the original version. And you can watch these two films and 40% of these two films are the same. And then they're vastly different, different plots, different things happen, different characters live, different characters die, blah, blah, blah. They're two completely different films that are in the Venn diagram have 40% that are exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a fascinating thing to see a Frankenstein of a movie happen. Um, ultimately, I think given that the DC extended universe, or you've got a new Batman, they're just sort of changing everything. They're almost kind of sweeping this under the rug. I would like to see as a as an exercise. I'd watch it. I'd probably even buy it just yeah, as I an mean, exercise there's certainly, to go, hey. There's an aspect of, well, why the hell not? Yeah, there's like, if, if it's financially viable, I'd love to see it. But I would say to everybody who's clamoring for it and who hates Joss Whedon for what he did, I don't know that what you're going to get is necessarily better. Yeah, I don't that, think that's you're going definitely to get something, in dispute. It, yeah, so I mean, maybe you'll appreciate it more because you go like, oh, here's what Zack Snyder was going for. But his track record has not been awesome. Anyway, listen, guys, this has been amazing going through the Snyderverse. Arthur, I love going through all of this with you. Um, I wish I could tell you guys what is next. We will talk about that um, uh, in a couple of weeks. You'll be able to hear the next uh, phase of, of what we have. Um, we are recording this probably... A, nearly a month before you guys hear it. We're recording this on March 12th. Uh, this is before we even released uh, the second Man of Steel. Um, so given that we are right now as a country and as a world going through something kind of weird uh, with the coronavirus, um, let you know. I just want to wish everybody health and well-being um, mm-hmm. and with the financial implications and everything, everything going on, we hope that we're able to add just a, a little bit of distraction, a little bit of fun to your lives. This is why we do it. Um, and, uh, and we're going to keep being there for you and making good stuff for you. Um, but, uh, for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Stay justified. Right? Does that work? Justified? Justified. Yeah, sure. Nope. Yeah. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not safe for work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Endlight Entertainment. 